So we've been talking about the family of God versus fellowship with God. And as promised, this week I want to get into a much more detailed discussion of 1 John chapters 2 and 3. Really the whole letter, but we're going to zero in on on the end of chapter 2 and chapter 3. We did touch on these a little bit last week, but I want to go verse by verse and and really kind of nail that down. Uh, This is one of those passages like James 2 that we've talked about several weeks ago that is often misunderstood and therefore misapplied. Uh, However, when you really take the time to look at it in its plain normal context, it's not complicated. It's pretty straightforward. And so hopefully that'll uh, be beneficial uh, for you tonight. But by way of review, let's remember the big picture here that we're uh, talking about. The overarching theme on our midweek study is sin, the Savior, and salvation. And uh, we're just talking about all things related to eternal life, eternal salvation, salvation, discipleship, sanctification, all of those things. Much, much, much more to come. Obviously, there's plenty of material in God's Word about God's redemptive plan. So we've got many things that I just I really can't wait to get to. I'm looking forward to discussing. Uh, but in our flow of thought, where we are is talking about uh, the distinction between being part of the family of God versus being in fellowship with God. And this is the third installment of that topic. Uh, if you recall, in our first uh, session, we looked at, um, actually even before that, this is really the fourth. It's the third about family of God versus fellowship with God. But we started out, uh, even before getting to this topic, uh, with just looking at what it means to be in the family of God. And you may recall we talked about John 3 and the story of Jesus interacting with Nicodemus and the whole idea of being adopted into the family of God. And then we said, now that you're in the family of God, what does it mean to be in fellowship with God? And that's where we've been the last two weeks, and now uh, we will finish that up probably uh, here today. So just by way of review, let's uh, go back to the key verse here, which is Galatians 3, that reminds us that we are all sons of God, that is, children of God, through faith in Jesus Christ. So uh, the diagram that we've been using is, one of a lost sinner outside of the family of God, born dead in his trespasses and sins, not a child of God, and by because of his sin, he is separated from God. So sin created a a separation spiritually from our Creator. But through faith alone in Christ alone, a door is open and we are deposited, the moment we trust in Christ and Him alone for salvation, into uh, the family of God. And, uh, and so, once you're in the family of God, by faith, again, all are sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ, you can't ever get outside of the family of God. You are eternally secure. Uh, that's one of the topics I can't wait to get to, is a biblical uh, treatment of the doctrine of eternal security. Uh, but there are a lot of passages that speak in terms of this family of God uh, nuance. Um, John, 1 John 3, which we're going to look at tonight, talks about what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called a child of God. Or John 1.12, when we believe in Him, that is, when we receive the free gift of eternal life, we then become a child of God. Uh, and the passage I mentioned a moment ago, Jesus speaks in terms of a rebirth. You know, to be born into a physical earthly family you got to be born right you have a biological father and a biological mother well to be born into God's family you also have to be born and that's what Jesus was talking to uh, 
uh, to Nicodemus about is this idea of being born from above or being spiritually uh, born. Uh, so, uh, but what we're talking about the last couple of weeks is the fact that although you may be in the family of God, there is a deeper, more intimate connection you can have with God, uh, which is spoken of in terms of fellowship. You can be in fellowship with God, and that's what the whole book of 1 John is all about. Truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ, and these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. And so we talked about how when we sin, and this is the whole point of John's epistle, it breaks fellowship with God, and it makes our lives miserable, because the way of transgressors is hard. God's divine design for the new nature within us is not for us to live in sin. We were created in in Christ as a new new Christian to reflect the image of Christ and to live out the new nature. Uh, and so we are supposed to walk in the Spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh. When we yield, and, and John is going to speak of this in the passage we're going to look at tonight in terms of confession, when we yield to the Lord, we are in fellowship uh, with Him. And the whole idea here is that when you're in fellowship, you're going to have as John says, uh, fullness of joy. So it's a question of do you want to experience the full joy of knowing Jesus or do you want to be in misery? And, 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 and a Christian who lives in sin is like a fish out of water. That is not God's divine design. Now, it does not mean that we're not really a Christian. And a lot of people mistakenly think that. They see a person living in sin and say, well, they must not be part of the family of God. Because no part, no member of the family of God is going to act like that. Well, sadly, our own uh, anecdotal experiential evidence as well as the testimony of Scripture say otherwise. It is possible for a believer to sin and to sin in a prolonged sense. It's not recommended. It's not healthy. It's not normal. It's evidence of a weakness of your faith. Uh, and it has serious, serious consequences. Another a topic that's on my list to cover is the awfulness of sin and what, what are the ramifications of sin in the life of a believer. Um, so we're speaking in, in this series about the concept of uh, the, the believers being in the family of God and what, how sin impacts that. And it can never cause God to disown us or take away the eternal life that he gave us, and if he could take it away, it wouldn't be eternal anyway. So it would be a, God turns God into a liar. Uh, it would be like he said, I gave you eternal life, but I didn't really mean it. What I really gave you was conditional life. No, he gives us eternal life at the moment of faith. So you can't ever uh, you know, break through this wall here that we've talked about, because uh, 1 Peter 1.3 reminds us that we're kept by the power of God through faith ready to be revealed in the last time. So you can't ever get outside that uh, wall. And Ron was saying before we got started tonight that you know, the arrow there that I've got pointing to the wall is, is, is really would be better if it was from the inside out. It's like you're in the family of God. You can't get out because your spiritual DNA has changed the moment you trust Christ. Uh, I just don't have enough room inside the circle to put everything, so I put the verses outside and I'm just pointing to the wall but you can't break through that wall as a child of God however sin definitely does have an impact sin affects something it affects a lot of things actually what does it affect well that's what we've been uh, been talking about so um, 
So we are kind of using this paradigm here of the family of God fellowship, joy and misery, and overlaying that concept uh, against a bunch of passages of Scripture that when you understand the difference between our position in Christ, when we talk about family of God, we're talking about our position. We are in Christ, is the, is the Paul, Pauline uh, term. Uh, and our practice, which is the way we actually live out, then a lot of passages of Scripture that are otherwise confused or mishandled become clear. So, to, to, again, when I talk about our position in Christ, we're talking about that you're part of the family of God. You are adopted into the family of God. Nothing can change that. You've been permanently declared righteous positionally before a holy God. You've been permanently redeemed. You've been permanently reconciled to a holy God. Uh, you've been permanently forgiven. There's 33, there are 33 things that happen at the moment you place your faith in Christ. And all of those things can never be undone. That's our position. But our practice, though it ought to reflect our position, sometimes doesn't. And what John is writing uh, about in his epistle is about how uh, we should not sin because no child of God who is healthy is going to live that way. So we've looked at a lot of these. We won't go back and review them, but we left off with uh, talking about being a disciple versus not being a disciple. And so when you're a disciple, that is, you're following Christ. A disciple just means follower, right? That's all it means. Disciple is not, in the Bible, a synonym for Christian. A lot of people teach that it is, uh, but that's clearly and easily uh, disproven uh, for reasons like, for example, Judas was called a disciple, but we know from the biblical record he was not a Christian. He's in hell today. So we have examples of people being called disciples because why? They followed Christ. Even in our day, many people follow Christ because they think his teachings are good. He's a great teacher. Uh, they think because they have gone through some type of religious steps that are related to Christ, that somehow they are a follower of Christ, but they may, ne may never have believed in him. So you, being a disciple does not mean you're a believer. In fact, J. Dwight Pentecost uh, actually delineates three kinds of disciples in Scripture. And we will probably, I'll probably say this again with slides down the road when we get to sanctification, uh, but it's worth mentioning now. In the Bible, you have the curious disciple, which are people who followed the crowds, followed Christ because he was doing miracles and signs and he was the big talk of the town and they wanted to see what all the hubbub was about. They were curious. And therefore, they followed Christ, but they never believed in him. Then you have the convinced, which are those who not only followed him, but believed that he was the Son of God who can take away the sin of the world. He was the only hope for salvation, and they placed their faith in him. They were convinced, right? But then you have a third class of disciple, which is the committed. And the committed are those who not only believe the gospel, but are willing to forsake all and follow him. And many of the passages of Scripture in the, in the Gospels that speak to the high cost of discipleship are mistakenly assumed to be calls to salvation. So a lot of people will say, well, you can't get, go to heaven unless you're willing to, you know, to put your hand to the plow and not look back, or to count the cost before you build, or to take up your cross and follow me. But those are all calls to discipleship and commitment. 
That's not how you get into heaven. Nobody gets into heaven on the strength of their commitment. If that was the, the, the requirement, we'd all be in trouble because our commitment wavers every day. And if you go back and look at the context in all of those passages, Jesus is speaking to believers about the high cost of really being committed. So there are curious disciples who are not going to heaven. They're not saved. There are convinced disciples who are saved. And then there are those that are really committed. Those who are following Christ at great personal cost. Okay. So, but in terms of our fellowship, if we want to overlay that disciple paradigm here, we're talking about, you know, you can be a member of the family of God and not be following Christ. Peter, for example, it could hardly be said he was following Christ when he denied him three times and cursed him. I mean, I'm not, I mean, we could talk all day about a comprehensive definition of what it really means to be a follower of Christ, but I'm pretty sure denying him and cursing him is not it. Would, would we agree on that? So you, he was, but he was a believer, right? Peter was a believer. So as we look at the history of our lives and our journey, there are plenty of times when we can think, you know what? I'm not really following Christ. I'm out of fellowship. I'm in rebellion. I'm, I'm bitter. I'm angry. I'm just sort of having a pity party, whatever it might be. But I'm not walking by faith. I'm not walking in the Spirit. I'm catering to the flesh. And in that moment, I'm not a disciple. But I'm a believer. Okay? So that's uh, disciple and believer. Along the same lines, we could talk about what it means to be Christ-like versus not Christ-like. Now, this is uh, pretty easy to comprehend, but if you're following Christ and in fellowship with Christ, you're Christ-like. But if you're not, you're not Christ-like. For example, uh, Paul said in Philippians 2.5, Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. The reason he had to say that is because it's possible to not have the mind of Christ, right? We can have the mind of the flesh. Or Romans 13, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, be Christ-like. Be true to your name. The name Christian means Christ-like. But when we are fulfilling the lust of the flesh, we're not Christ-like, right? Um, and we talked a little bit, I think, about the new man, old man paradigm. When you get saved, the Holy Spirit takes up residence, you are reborn, and you have a new nature. Twice, Paul calls this the new man. But guess what? That old man is still there. And there's this constant struggle. We looked at that in, in Galatians 5 in a previous session. Paul talks about this about his own life in Romans 7. So when you are acting like the old man, you're not in fellowship with God. But if you're acting like the new man that's indwelling within you, the new nature... Uh, than you are. Um, but let's skip ahead now to 1 John. And I want to camp out here for the rest of our time together uh, tonight. So uh, the, the big picture here is when you're acting righteous, when you're behaving righteously, you're in fellowship with the Lord. When you're not, you're not. <laughs> Nobody can be living an immoral life or, in, in, to be less uh, potent, we could just say behaving in any way that's unrighteous. Because often immorality is, is associated with the worst of the worst, right? It, it, all, all sin is immoral, but you know, maybe you're just behaving unrighteously. In that moment, you're not in fellowship. 
So let me contextualize 1 John for you a little bit more. And then if you want to go ahead and turn to 1 John 1, we're going to quickly point out a couple of things and then get all the way to chapter 3 where we're going to go verse by verse. But if you recall from my Spirit of the Antichrist series that we did 18 sessions on that, uh, John has a lot to say about Antichrists. And he's warning the first, the late first century Christian community to, to, community to whom he was writing about these antichrists that he says were already at work in their midst. He says that in 1 John 2.18. He comes back to it again uh, in 1 John 4.3 where he says the spirit of antichrist is already at work. And one of the false teachings of these antichrists that the readers that John was writing to had fallen prey to was that sin... Is, not, is no big deal. Sin, sin is okay. Uh, in fact, uh, he's going to say in verse 7 of chapter 3, which I'll show you in a moment, let no one deceive you. Well, what's the number one thing the Antichrist and the spirit of the Antichrist is all about? Deception. That's why the subtitle of the series, Spirit of the Antichrist, is the gathering cloud of deception. And that's why we spent, I don't remember, four or five sessions on the spirit of pretense, the number one of the seven spirits that I looked at. Because that's the biggie, deception. And so these believers that John was writing to were being deceived into thinking that their sin was inconsequential, that it was no big deal. Very similar to the way James's uh, church, his, his uh, parishioners, remember James was a pastor in Jerusalem, he was writing to the scattered flock, thought that the faith and works didn't have to go together. There's, not, there's no connection there. And again, we've already talked about that, so we won't go back and rehash that. But James was not saying that they were going to hell because they had no works. He was just saying that it was unnatural and unhealthy and unprofitable and, and, and not practical to be a believer who's not also living out their faith. So John is really making the same point, that they might think that there's no real serious problem with sin, but he emphatically shows them throughout this epistle that there is a problem with it. Because it breaks fellowship with God uh, when uh, you sin. And, and now here we are by way of application 2,000 years later. And guess what? We have the same deception being taught. That, that you know, sin is, is being marginalized and normalized. And go back and look at number 17 in my Spirit of the Antichrist deal. Where I talk about per, spirit of perversion and those types of things, right? So, you know... Uh, fundamentally, when Satan can convince people that what's wrong is right or what's wrong is not a problem, then that's a deception. Yeah, Sally. Uh, you hear people say all the time that uh, it's just relative. Sin is just relative. Sure, yeah. It's moral relativism. Uh, you know, uh, yeah, that, that, that's Satan's big deception. It's not really important. I mean, sin has been around since the fall of man. But the degree to which mankind embraces and normalizes and marginalizes sin obviously is getting worse and worse. That's what Paul meant in 2 Timothy 3.13. Evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. So, so that's kind of the, the overarching idea of, of John and his epistle. So now let's just take a look at 1 John 1. And here's his introductory remarks. He says, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you. Now remember who's writing this. The Apostle John, one of the inner three, Peter, James, and John, who walked and talked with Christ, 
who was right there beside Christ in the upper room in 33 AD, and now here it is, early 90s, 60 years later, and he's, he's writing to his audience and saying, look, we've experienced this fellowship that I'm talking to you about in the most tangible way. We've, you know, the things which we have seen and heard uh, and so forth. In fact, uh, if you look at verse 1, it's not on the screen, but he says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled. I mean, he embraced our Lord physically at times, right? He wept with him and so forth. That's what we're talking about. But that fellowship, that intimacy of fellowship is still available to us. And he says, that you may also have fellowship along with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So it's beyond me how anybody and so many commentators and, and well-intentioned believers do this can read First John and somehow come away that it's a book of how to know whether you're a Christian or not. It's a book of you know, tests of being in the family. It's not about tests of being in the family. It's about tests of being in fellowship. He uses the first person pronoun frequently, we. He calls them children and brothers and those kinds of things. But again, as we said, his point is so that they may have joy. You know, again, if you go back to the, the diagram, he wants them to have that intimacy of relationship uh, with the, the Father. And many believers are content with a, with a sort of a, a marginalized relationship with Christ. They've believed in Him unto eternal life. They've you know, believed the gospel. But they're, they're still living the rest of their life on earth through the human eyes and through walking in the flesh and not really recognizing that, as Paul said in Philippians 3.20, they are citizens of heaven now and they have a different perspective. Uh, so that's the uh, first John. And then he goes on to say in this famous passage, if we say we have no sin, uh, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And again, it, it hardly needs mentioning uh, how, how some people can, can, can take this as, or addressing anyway, how some people can take this as a salvation verse. Um, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. This John includes himself, and John as a writer of Scripture is certainly saved. How many of you think you have to be a believer to write Scripture and let the Holy Spirit? Of course you do, right? Um, you know, nowhere in anything John's ever written, and indeed within anywhere else in the Scripture, is confession of sin a requirement for getting into heaven. John's entire gospel, which is the only gospel that has a purpose statement, was written that we might believe and that in believing we might have eternal life. And he, he never mentions once in there that you have to confess your sins to go to heaven. So this is about uh, fellowship. And so what John is saying here is that instead of denying our sinfulness, however sincerely, we should acknowledge it. It's certainly true that as we walk in the light and in fellowship with God, remember in verse, I think it's verse 7, he says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship. Uh, at any given time, we, we may or may not be conscious of our sinfulness, but the light that shines forth from God and being in the family of God will have this revelatory significance in our life and it will point out from time to time our failures. 
And when that happens, John says, we should confess them. You know, So we're not talking here about blatant, willful rebellion against God and consciously walking away from God so that you need to repent. He doesn't use the word repent here. He uses the word confess. So you're in fellowship with the Lord. You're reading the word of God. You're fellowshipping in a local believers, with other believers in a local assembly. You're prayer, praying and so forth. And then in the midst of that, somehow the Spirit of God convicts you of some sin in your life. Maybe it was something you said. Maybe it was something you did. Whatever. In that moment, John says, confess. Well, what does confess mean? I've talked about this quite a bit. Confess means to say the same thing as. To agree with God about. To admit or acknowledge. It's the Greek word homo legeo. Same. Speak. To speak the same thing as. So you're, you're a believer. Uh, the Spirit of God, as you're fellowshipping with God, convicts you of a certain sin in your life. Your appropriate response, John says, is, Lord, you're right. You're right. I agree with you on that. Then depending on the nature of it, you, it may require, if it was a sin against someone else, comparison with, from, of Scripture with Scripture, says we may need to go make things right with that person and so forth. But most of the time, it's sins of the heart that are between us and the Lord, and we just want to, you know, agree about it. So an analogy that uh, a former mentor of mine who's now with the Lord gave was that, let's say a man has just put on a suit, and he's just quickly, hastily examined it to see if it had any spots or dirt on it, and he didn't see any, so he throws it on. Then he walks into a lighted room wearing that suit, and he might be active in that room for some time before he actually notices that, in fact, there's a spot or two on his suit. The light shined on it. And at that point, he can do one of two things. He can deny the truth of what he's been shown in the light by saying, no, that's not a spot of dirt. It's just part of the weave of the fabric when clearly it's a spot, right? Or... He can, you know, say, no, oh, well, there's a spot. I need to do something about it. I didn't see it before. I didn't know it before. So you can be in fellowship, and it doesn't mean that you're perfect. It just doesn't mean that the Spirit of God has not called to your mind some particular sin or issue in your life. But when he does, that's when we need to agree with God and make it right. Yeah. So um, I'm a visitor, but I'm one that always asks questions or has we love it. You're very welcome to, the, to ask questions here. So, um, Always. Friends of the Larsons in, from Arizona. Well, we won't hold that against you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, based on what you're saying about fellowship, Christians being in fellowship, this is bringing to mind about when we're talking about sin, we are never going to be completely without, free of sin until we see Jesus face to face. Correct. So saying that we should become aware of this, we all have some sin of unbelief or doubting or like even coming here late today because we went going to Plum Creek Church way far away. <laughs> oh, don't do that. But it's just thinking, okay, now did God perfectly plan this? And is this okay? And is he going to redeem our late arrival because in the past, I would have been very upset about yeah. this and really hard on myself. And I would have been committing sin 
because of I wasn't trusting God in my mistake. Yeah, and if the Spirit of God showed you that, then in that moment, it's just a matter of, you know what? Thank you, Lord, for pointing that out. I'm going to trust you in this. And we've talked previously, I know you haven't been here, but we've talked previously about how really all sin comes down to a lack of trust. Paul said whatever's not of sin is, whatever's not of faith is sin. So, but, but, and and, in just a moment, we're going to get to the passage that actually makes the point that you just did, which is you're never going to be sinless. It's not about achieving perfection as the holiness movement suggests, because as long as we're in this sin-stricken body, we're not going to be able to. What it's about is how do we respond when the light shines on our life and shows us our sin. And so now, you know, obviously we, we, you got to be careful about legalism and all this. This is not some formulaic thing where you've got to keep a list and every single possible thing you did that might be wrong, you've got to verbally... That's not what confession means. Some people have, have misunderstood the meaning of 1 John 1.9 to that extreme. But confession just means to agree with God. And it's, it's, it's just a simple factor of when you are made aware by the convicting work of the Spirit, and what did Jesus say His purpose is, the, the Spirit's purpose. By the way, don't ever forget the Spirit is He, not it. Mm-hmm. It took me years to break that habit. Mm-hmm. But it's He is God. So when He, the Holy Spirit, comes, Jesus says He, the Spirit, will convict the world of what? Sin righteousness and judgment so when he does how do we respond now if you uh, dig your heels in and you have a hard heart and you quench the spirit or grieve the spirit or don't yield to the spirit then over time you develop a hardness of heart and that gets into becoming backslidden and, and those types of things but in the normal aspect of a healthy believer who's walking in christ and growing it sometimes may be three steps forward two steps back or that kind of thing. But as long as you're growing, when the Spirit of God convicts, you want to uh, respond and uh, confess it. Okay. Yeah. Um, I just have a question about what you said about it not being um, this verse in First John about that it's not a test of being saved. It's not how to be saved, right? And you said um, that when we're saved, it's not. We have to confess our sins, and I've never really heard anyone say that before. Like, say that we that, don't have that to confess. When you get saved, that you're you don't. It's not a matter of confessing your sins. Correct. And so I've been sitting here thinking about that. When I got saved, I had a couple of months before I actually got saved where I had a heavy conviction on me. I didn't understand what was happening, and thinking all these things I had done wrong my whole life, and but at the moment when I got saved. Like, I could never think of every single sin I've ever done in my Correct. life. Mm-hmm. But it was a matter of turning to Christ and knowing that he died on the cross for all of that and believing what he did and then rising again. It wasn't so much like, I did this, 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 and this. Right. But it was it was there to the, to the degree of knowing that he died for all of that. Yeah. Yeah. So you you make a great point. So we need to remember that after 2000 years, the devil's primary goal, which is to keep the lost lost. And he's doing that according to 2 Corinthians 4, 4, by blinding men's hearts to the gospel. After 2000 years of the world being under the sway of the wicked one, he's created all kinds of false gospels. 
And uh, that's what one of my books is about, the Getting the Gospel Wrong. And then we also have a, a video on our uh, YouTube channel on what the gospel is not. And a lot of people will say, oh, you, to get saved, you've got to confess all your sins. Okay, well, what does the Bible say? So the Bible could not be more clear that salvation is by faith alone. More than 160 times the New Testament conditions eternal life upon faith alone. So you never find anywhere in the Bible it's saying you've got to confess to be saved or to get to heaven or to be born again or any of those synonymous terms, ever. Yeah. I agree with what she just said so much. You know, I, I think about what I've heard about Martin Luther and how his own confessor would say that, oh my gosh, you know, stop it already, you know, because he would, he would just spend so many hours trying to think, oh my gosh, did I covet the piece of potato on brother so-and-so's plate? Right. <laughs> and I think about how we focus then so much on the sins, because as a young Catholic who was raised Catholic, elementary school, high school, I, me I remember distinctly oh, yeah. my first confession and being so terrified that I was going to go in that confessional and I was like, oh my gosh, I know I'm a bratty kid, but what do I say? Like, Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. This is my first confession. I accuse myself of... What if you forget something? And I'm thinking, well, I know I've disobeyed my parents a lot, but I haven't kept track yeah. of it. So do I say 100? Do I say 500? And I came up with the number 54. Yeah. That sounded, that sounded like... It was kind of accurate. I wasn't just making it up. But it's like living with that guilt yeah. constantly instead of like she said or you've said yeah. you know focusing on the forgiveness and Amen. Was everything was on the sin Amen. Yeah. By the way, I was talking to Len. He thinks 54 is a little low. So just <laughs> just for what that's worth. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I get it. I totally get it. It's like the little boy who went into his first confession and he, he said, I forgive me for this and this. And then he kind of paused and said, Father, I can't think of anything else, but check with my mom. She knows. You know? Yeah, for sure. Mom knows. So, yeah. I had some similar thoughts to Debbie's because I read an article today where Franklin Graham talked about uh, accepting Christ. And he says, just say, God, I've sinned. I'm sorry. I believe Jesus is your son, and I want to trust him as my Savior, and I want to invite him to come into my life. So he talks about acknowledging the sin. But we're saying that this acknowledgement isn't part of being saved. It's the faith that saves you. So what? So I would have several problems with that statement from Franklin Graham. And I know he's kind of untouchable, so I love him. And he's going to be way ahead of me at the beam of judgment in heaven. But nevertheless, we have, we're called to evaluate doctrine based on the Word of God. Uh, again, you know, why not use Bible words with Bible definitions? And the, the meaning of believe is not ambiguous. It's not unclear. It has become that after 2,000 years of Satan's de deception. But everybody knows what it means to believe. And to believe in something doesn't mean to say I'm sorry for something. Those are completely two different things. Right? So saying I'm sorry to God unless you believe the gospel, is meaningless, right? So, but back to the issue of, of sin. Obviously, you cannot believe in Jesus to save you from the penalty of sin if you don't know you're a sinner. So that's, that, that's sort of a prerequisite, right? 
And I, I deal with that in getting the gospel wrong, sort of the five core essentials. By definition, to be saved means to be rescued, right? So if you don't know you're drowning, you're not going to grab the life preserver, right? If you don't know you're sick, you're not going to do that. You know, so you obviously need to recognize your sin, but recognizing that you're a sinner and confessing all of your sins are two entirely different things. And so uh, we need to get back to what does the Bible say? And uh, I was having this, this discussion with someone yesterday about this. You know, a lot of people like to d uh, debate theology, and I love it. I love good theological repartee. I mean, I could do it all day. But I don't like it as much when it becomes... You know, this theologian says this, this Bible scholar says this, so-and-so says this. If you say this, you agree with that. I like to get rooted in the Scripture, and that's the way I learn. And I've learned so much. And, and by the way, theology is a lifelong process. You never arrive. That's why I much prefer these types of Q&A small group studies than I do speaking in front of 10,000 people. Because I, I, people ask questions that get me thinking. So why not stick with what the Bible says, which is, Verily, verily, I say unto you, whoever believes in me has everlasting life. And that's repeated 160 times. So I would disagree with that sample prayer. I don't have a problem with a sample prayer, although it's not prayer that saves us. We know that. It's faith. But it often can be helpful to express faith in a prayer. That's fine. I don't believe in a sinner's prayer, some magical chant that you recite and that gets you in. But I don't have a problem with suggesting, hey, if you really want to trust Christ, you might say something like this. Dear Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I'm trusting you to pay my penalty for sin and give me the free gift of eternal life. Now, it doesn't have to be those exact words, but that's the essence of it. But when you interject things like, I'm sorry for my sin, or I promise to forsake my sin, or I'll never do that again, or I'm going to follow you wholeheartedly, and all these levels of commitment, mm -hmm. it just muddies the waters. Uh, yeah? Um, so, there's, I think this is first somewhere in First John where it says, our work is to believe. I wish I could remember the exact scripture, but um, for me, in in walking in joy with the Lord, when I recognize blemishes that I didn't see before or that come to my mind, like idols that I didn't see, but as you walk closer and closer with the Lord, you see idols that sure. you never knew you had. Um, there is a there is definitely like oh my gosh I didn't realize that this was an issue sure right you like and then but instead of like being confessing it and and just just it's like okay I'm gonna trust I'm gonna trust God that I have I have an idolatry that education graduating from college is essential for living and I realize now that that's a false idolatry of education. And I'm going to trust God that even if my child doesn't get a college education, that that God has does not care about that, and they're going to be, they can still become, they can still become their their design that God has for them. Amen. Right, and that is, but I didn't realize, like I didn't realize I had that idol until it was tested. And when you did, then how did you respond? You responded in faith, right? right? And in trust, and, and it's, right. rather than just confessing, it's a, then living. The trust that God is God is going to it's part of his economy and even though I don't understand it and it doesn't doesn't match with the world's economy it's going to be just fine yeah absolutely I mean that goes back to the no trust believe paradigm that I've that I've taught for years 
and we've talked about it in, here in Plum Creek. By the way, there's only one Plum Creek, and it's Plum Creek Chapel. <laughs> yes, thank you. We learned that. Not Plum Creek Church, just for the record. Uh, so, but you know, the whole Christian life comes down to walking by faith. Second Corinthians five seven, and so if you want to obey, you've got to trust, and if you want to trust, you've got to know. You don't trust something you don't know. So the idea here is the more we get to know the, the Lord through his self-revelation, the more we'll trust him. The more we trust him, the more we'll obey him. Just like the old song says, trust and obey. So if you have an obedience problem, it's probably, if you trace it all the way back, because you have a knowledge problem. People who Christians who don't read the Word of God, study the Word of God, and hear the Word of God taught and explained are not as likely to trust God. And if you don't trust God... You're not going to obey him, right? But we also need to clarify that the way Roman Catholicism and many other religions use the term confess is not the way the Bible uses the term. Remember, the Bible was not written in English, okay? So the Greek word confess simply means to agree with God, not write down a list of things. So, uh, so in no sense is what some of you have been talking about in terms of Roman Catholic model, in no sense is that accurate. But in terms of the Christian life, when we talk about confess and what John means here that we've got on the screen is simply to agree with God. When the Spirit of God convicts you of something that's not in agreement with the Lord, you should say, okay, I, you're right, Lord. You're right. Uh, so, and did you, did I get, did I cut you off or are you? No, no. no. <laughs> I was trying to. All right, so let's move ahead. I can already tell we're not going to get to the main part that I wanted to, uh, but that's fine. That's great. So 1 John 2, 6. Now, again, we're just contextualizing leading up to chapter 3. Uh, John is saying, he who says he abides, in, he who abides in him ought himself also to walk as Jesus walked. Now, remember, what did we say abide means? It means to remain in fellowship with Christ, to walk in close uh, fellowship with Christ. It's the word meno, and it's what Jesus challenged the disciples to do uh, in the upper room uh, the night that he was betrayed. He said, look, abide in me. Stay close to me. It's going to be rough sledding for a few weeks, <laughs> you know, a few days especially. But stay close to me because without me you can do nothing. Again, some commentators will suggest that that just means you've got to get saved. That if you're, if you're not abiding, you're not saved. But that's not true at all. Why would Jesus tell 11 believers in the upper room who were already saved because Judas had already left to abide if they were already abiding? No, abide means to stay in close fellowship with. And then the focal passage I want us to look at tonight, we get to 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. Remember, there were no chapter divisions in the original uh, text. Uh, those didn't come along until 1551, so many centuries after the book of 1 John was written. Um, and so the, really the flow of thought starts in 1 John 2, uh, 28. And he says, little children, abide in him. So again, calling them little children is admitting that they're believers. Abide in him so that when he appears, we'll have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. A believer would not want to meet the Lord in the air at the rapture, having left the earth in a state of, of abject rebellion against God. That's not going to be a proud moment. Now, once you get into heaven, it doesn't matter anyway. We're all, all, there's no sin in heaven. But in that moment of 
the, the Bema judgment, there will be regret. Uh, not punishment, mind you, but regret. Then he goes on, If you know that he is righteous, talking about Jesus, then you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Now this gets confusing because our English translations are all different, and I was looking at that a lot yesterday and today, and it really, it's no wonder people don't understand 1 John 3. But the word practice here in Greek is the word poieo, and it just means to do. If you look it up in the lexicon, it means to do. For some reason, the New King James chose to, practice, to translate it practice, but essentially all it's saying is he who does what is righteous is born of him. Because righteousness is born out of Christ's righteousness. The things that you do apart from Christ, or maybe before you were saved, that might appear to be morally good, Isaiah tells us those are just filthy rags. Real righteousness, real practice of righteousness, can only be born out of positional righteousness. So if you've not been positionally made righteous, justified by faith, whatever righteous acts you might think you're doing are not really righteous. So anyone born of God does what is righteous. They're the only ones who can do what is righteous. Then he goes on to say, "What Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God. Therefore the world does not know us, because it didn't know Him. In other words, if everybody likes you, you're probably not a healthy child of God. Because if you're a healthy child of God, imitating Christ, and in close intimate fellowship with Him, you ought to be drastically different from the world. Which is what the calling of Christianity is. And the closer we get to the, the Luciferian elite's new world order being ushered in, the, the less and less Christians are actually shining like stars in this perverse generation. That's, that's Paul's term, shining like stars. We've become marginalized. It's harder and harder to see a difference. The church is apostate. Christians are going the way of the world. And it's getting worse and worse and worse. Uh, so then he says, Beloved, we are children of God. Can there be any doubt that he's talking to believers here? And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Talking about the physical redemption of the body, the glorification process. It's the same thing that Paul says over here in Romans 8, uh, 25, where he says, we, uh, or 26 rather, like, or let's see, I'll find it here eventually, 23. Romans 8, 23. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruit of the Spirit, even we ourselves uh, groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. Okay. So as a child of God, we know that we won't always be confined to this physical body. We're, we're members of the family of God. Our citizenship is in heaven and so forth. Uh, but someday... We're going to put on this mortality, we'll put on immortality, this corruptible, we'll put on incorruption, and we will be changed, 1 Corinthians 15. Now, here's where we need to make sure we understand what this is saying. John says, everyone who has this hope, the hope of seeing Christ face to face, purifies himself, lives, like some of you were saying, day to day with being sensitive to the Spirit, agreeing with God when we mess up and sin, and growing in our faith, growing deeper in our intimate relationship with God, because we know a better day is coming. But notice it says, just as He is pure. 
doesn't say just as he is mostly pure. <laughs> See, the way the rest of 1 John 3 here is interpreted would make no sense. Uh, it, it, it makes no sense if, unless you understand that Jesus is pure. For the way most people interpret this to make sense, it would have to say Jesus is mostly pure. Because most people say what John is saying is that as long as you're not habitually or continuously or sinning a whole lot, as long as there's only a little bit of sin and you're predominantly righteous, then you're really a Christian and you're really going to heaven. But with John, it's a zero-sum game. John, throughout his letter, speaks in stark contrast. Light, darkness, you know, child of God, not child of God, those kinds of things. And what he's saying here is that in Christ, there is no sin. He is completely pure. Look back at uh, 1 John 1, 9, or 1, 5, rather. Uh, this is the, I don't have it on the screen, but this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is only a little bit of darkness. Is that what it says? No, no darkness, right? Uh, and what about uh, 1 John 3, 5, the next couple of verses later? Again, I don't have it on the screen yet, but it says, And you know that he, Jesus, was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is only a little bit of sin. Is that what it says? In him there is no sin, no darkness, no light, totally pure. So if you are abiding in Christ, there can be no sin. You cannot be sinning and claim to be in fellowship with Christ at the same time. Because the born of God part of you, the new nature, the new man, the spirit of God taking up residence within you, never produces sin. And so for people to say that what John is teaching here is that if you really are a Christian, there's not going to be a whole bunch of sin or a pattern of sin or a, they insert all these words that aren't in the text, it completely misses his point. He's not talking about whether or not you're a Christian. He's talking about whether or not you're in fellowship with the Lord. He's already said at the outset, look, Christians sin. In fact, if you say you don't sin, you're a liar. <laughs> so it's not about the degree to which you sin or how much you sin in terms of whether or not you're a believer. It's about whether you've trusted Christ and Him alone. And once you've trusted Christ, you're positionally in Christ. Nothing can change that. But our practice may or may not, depending on our yieldedness, reflect that position, right? We've talked about this before. Um, so then he goes on, watch this, whoever commits sin commits lawlessness, sin is lawlessness. Lawlessness just means uh, you know, flagrant opposition to God, complete rejection of the law, sometimes just translated wickedness, uh, open rebellion against God. It's basically unhealthy for Christians to sin. And he says, and he was manifested uh, to take away our sins, and again, as I mentioned a moment ago, in him there is no sin. No sin. Sin, by definition, is ungodlike. Does that make sense? There's no sense whatsoever in which we can ever say that sin, on any level, is somehow acceptable to God. Sin, by its very nature, means to miss the mark. This is the word hamartia here. It's used like four times. Let's see. One, I counted them in Greek. One, two, three four times in these two verses. Hamartia. It means to miss the mark. Well, what's the mark? It's the standard. Any departure from righteousness is missing the mark. And any time we miss the mark, it's ungodlike. It's never 
godly to sin. Uh, yeah. So if you, if a person has a sin in their life that they know is a sin, and you have agreed with God that this is a sin, but you're having a very difficult time overcoming it. Yeah. That's the, that's the whole sanctification process, which is... Well, I think it, it comes back to faith by recognizing who you are as a child of God. You can never overcome sin in your own willpower and just pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and say, I'm gonna, I'll never do that again. You have to step back and recognize, and Paul talks a lot about this in Romans 6-8, through 8, that I am a child of the King. I'm set free. Why in the world would I ever want to go back and put on those old dirty clothes or go back into that prison? Why would I want to live like a pauper? When I'm a child of the King. And the more we begin to recognize and embrace and understand who we are in Christ, the more we will reflect that. But most Christians, who and, and we're all struggling with, with sin, most Christians, when they have a besetting sin, something that's just really got, got their goat at that time, they're, they're fighting the battle in the flesh. And they're sitting here you know, doing everything they can to overcome it in their own willpower instead of you know, like James says, looking at themselves in the mirror and seeing the new man that they are and thinking, wow, no, no man of God or woman of God should act like that. So, but that whole issue that you're describing, it really relates to the whole sanctification process. And we're going to get through that as we, as we get further down the road with some practical teaching on how to, how to handle that. Yeah. Um, I have a definition of sin that has been very helpful for me in just trying to use language that makes, it's not Bible language, and I'm going to ask you to correct me if you think it's way off. It says, it's a definition of sin that says, sin is a legitimate need. We, do, we sin when we, we fulfill a legitimate need in an illegitimate way. Yeah, I don't, I, I mean, I don't have a problem with that as a, a concept of a particular kind of sin, but I don't think it's compre a comprehensive definition of sin. No, but yeah. what I like about this definition, what has helped me, is it's helped me to identify within myself what is the need that I have that I'm filling illegitimately that's causing me to do this sin. Yeah, so I think that's just another way of saying what the, how the Bible defines sin. And there are different terms for sin. Each of them have a different nuance. Um, but hamartia is the overarching term, to miss the mark. But the Bible's definition, whatever is not of faith is sin. So ultimately, when you're elevating your own personal desires for personal reasons above trusting God, that's sin. So yeah, I mean, I think that's a, a helpful description and in, in context it can be very helpful in identifying sin I, I wouldn't use it as sort of a theological definition but I, I don't have a problem with it necessarily it's more like a tool for identifying <clears throat> yeah another problem that just popped into my mind with the Franklin Graham quote you gave earlier is at the end he says you know I invite you into my heart or something or invite you something to save me or something he used the word invite again that's a problem never does the scripture say we invite. Mm -hmm. Christ is the one inviting, right? And what it creates is this impasse. It's kind of the same thing of if, using the word give, which I've talked a lot about. The Bible never says give anything to the Lord to be saved. And yet we hear people all the time say, give your life to Christ, give your heart to Christ, give yourself to Christ, and you'll go to heaven. You know, the Bible says, no, God's the giver. We're the receiver to as many as received his gift. So salvation is one directional. God comes to us. We 
receive it. And if we're trying to give something to him, we've got no room in our hands to accept his gift. And the same thing is true of the invitation. So Jesus says, you know, whosoever will let him come drink of the water of life further. The Bible says, Jesus says, come unto me, all you are laboring or, you know, heavy burden, and I will give you rest. So the invitation is a universal invitation. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto thee. So there is an invitation, but it's God's open, universal invitation, come one, come all. Okay. So if, if we come to Christ, responding to that invitation, and then we say, okay, Jesus, I invite you, we've now got a standoff. We're both inviting each other to do something, and what do you do with that? Right? It's like two people wanting to get together for dinner. It's almost like giving God permission. That's what right, and we, and we don't need to do that. Right. The, the simple testimony of Scripture, again, 160 plus times is simply receive by faith the gift. So there are several things that really I struggle with uh, there. Now, we, we don't have worship practice, so if you'll grant me just a few more minutes, I'll go a little over. If anybody needs to leave, I certainly don't blame you, but I really want to tie up the loose end here with this passage. So here we come again once to this idea of abide. John is saying to these believers, if you abide in him, you do not sin. Now, we touched on this last week that a lot of English translations have a horrible translation here by adding keeps on sinning like the ESV and the NIV that's not what the text says nor does it say whoever continues to sin uh, this is based on a com completely debunked grammatical uh, rule called the habitual present this, these are both present active and indicative verbs and, and present tense just means the present tense and we don't we don't insert this notion of habitually or continually or keeps on anywhere else uh, when we uh, when we use this grammatical structure. I'm going to give you a couple of examples in a moment. But the reason they insert this here is, again, they think John is talking about whether or not you're a Christian. And since we know Christians sin, he can't be saying Christians don't sin, so he must be saying Christians don't sin a whole lot. So they insert the word, keep on uh, sinning. Uh, so, you know, the idea here is that somehow prolonged continuation in sin would never occur if you're really a Christian. But that causes all sorts of problems and, and questions. Uh, how much is too much? Uh, don't all Christians sin every day? And if we sin every day, isn't that a continuation of sin? Uh, I talked several weeks ago in here about how many of you are, have committed sins recently that you committed the day you got saved. Well, I mean, if you, if you continue in sin, it means you're not a Christian. That's a problem. Uh, so the, this idea of the habitual uh, present, it's been widely debunked. Um, in fact, uh, one of the top scholars, I have several of his books, Sake Kubo, uh, puts it this way. The habitual view actually plays havoc with the author's intention and argument. It turns it on its head. Uh, the entire thrust of the claim is destroyed by an interpretation that essentially says, quote, the child of God uh, of a sinless parent, the child of a sinless parent, remember how much sin there was in Christ? Zero. How pure is he? 100% pure. How much darkness is there in him? None. The, their view essentially says the child of a sinless parent can only sin a little. And that makes no sense, and it completely turns John's a notion on its head. Uh, flip uh, back to, um, oh, by the way, 
it's often been pointed out that if John somehow wanted to give the idea of, that hab of habitual sin here, plenty of ways in Greek he could have done that. For example, in Luke 24, uh, 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 we read, and they were continually in the temple praising God, right? Diapontos is the Greek word continually. Or the same word is in Hebrews 13 to 5, let us come continually to him. So if he wanted to express the notion of continually sinning, or continuously sinning, or keeping on sinning, he could have done that. Uh, but hold that thought for just a second. But I want you to flip back to 1 John 1.8. Let me see if I have it on the screen here. I don't. So 1 John 1.8. Same exact construction in Greek. Present, active, indicative. And essentially, if we applied the same rule that these translators are applying falsely, in 1 John 3, 6, what we would be saying is, if we say that we do not continually have sin, we deceive ourselves. And that would result in a contradiction with 1 John 3, 9. Uh, if a Christian does not continually sin, why shouldn't he say, I do not continually have sin? Does that make sense? So, you know, and then we see this in other places too. For example, in 1 John chapter 5, um, if again, if you apply this alleged habitual present, which again has been debunked, um, and for like 40 years, you still see it come up in commentaries. Um, if a true Christian does not continually sin, the way they say 1 John 3 is saying, then how could a Christian who sees a fellow Christian continually sinning, how, how could he see that? Christians don't continually sin, John says. And yet 1 John 5.16 says if you see a Christian sinning, again, they would have to translate it continually sinning, you should you know, uh, not pray for them. So uh, you had a thought. I, I did. <laughs> Uh-oh. So the second half of this, whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Yep. And he's speaking to believers. Correct. So... The second sentence here is about the ones that are not in fellowship. All of it's about in fellowship, right. Right. That's what abide means. Right, right. So to abide is to remain in close fellowship with. So if you're not in close fellowship, you're sinning. You've neither seen him nor known him. But you have because you came to faith in him. Right, so... Remember, this is where the positional versus practical makes all the difference in the world. You positionally know him, right? But you can, you can, even though you're positionally knowing him, you can, in practice, not know him. And we've got lots of examples of that. For example, Paul said in Philippians 3, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and the uh, glory of his suffering or something like that. I'm paraphrasing. But do you remember that? Same word. So it's Paul saying, I want to get saved and go to heaven. No, he's saying, I want to know him more intimately. Uh, we saw the same thing. I think I've got this verse. Yeah, when Peter or when Jesus says to Philip, have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me? Same word. So there is an intimate practical knowledge and there is a positional once for all knowledge. And I used the illustration last week of uh, if if uh, Karen, I think it was Karen, I not that it matters, but if Karen were to invite uh, Wendy and me over for dinner and she were to say, I'm going to make this great lasagna loaded with onions, Wendy's going to love it. And then I were to say, oh, no, no, Wendy 
can't stand onions. She's allergic to them. And Karen were to say, oh, no, come on, I know Wendy. She'll love it. I might say, you may know Wendy, but you don't know Wendy the way I know Wendy. Trust me, she can't stand onions, right? So there's, a, there's a, uh, an absolute knowledge, positional knowledge, and we come to faith in Christ. We now know God. We're part of the family of God. But you can know him intimately. The way Paul wanted to know him in Philippians 3 and the way Jesus says to Philip, you don't really know me, even though you've been with me all this time. Uh, J.B., yeah. even on a human level, an analogy would be a child that you have is your child, positionally. Sure. But if they are in rebellion in their life, it's not comfortable being around them. Maybe you haven't seen them in five years or ten. Or more. So you haven't seen them, and you don't know what's going on. In Correct. Your life. They don't know what's going on in your life. So great analogy. Yeah, I think that just. Kind yeah. Of so there's that. there's you know them as their your child. They're still your child. But if they're estranged or a prodigal, or you haven't seen them for twenty years, you may really not know them. And when you do get reconnected, you got to get to know them all over again. And the same thing is true spiritually. When a believer gets away from the Lord, gets out of fellowship, and may backslide for years. Again, I know. Uh, you know, our Calvinist friends would say, well, if you, if you are living in sin for uh, too long, then you really aren't saved. No, that, that's just not true. Uh, not recommending living in sin ever. Sin, I want to go on record that sin is bad, and it only leads to great unpleasantness, and I don't recommend it. But to say that somehow our behavior is the determining factor as to whether or not I'm a child of God is just not true. We have examples of people who've lived in rebellion against God for many years, and then finally the Spirit of God breaks through. They repent. They come back into fellowship with the Lord, and, and that's fine. So and that's what we want to strive for, right? So, so seeing and knowing, same thing. We, we, we can say the same thing, seeing God, uh, you know, seeing Him for who He really is. It's, if you're living in sin, it's as if you've not really seen Him. You, do, you have seen Him. But, you know, I used the illustration last session. You know, if, if someone were to come into church on Wednesday night or Sunday morning and, and they were to say, uh, hey, have you seen JB? Uh, the person is not going to say, well, yeah, he's about 5'8", a little overweight, getting old, you know, usually wears jeans. They're, they're going to say, that, no, 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 I, I, don't, I know you've seen him, but have you seen him lately? Right? That's what they mean. Yeah. On, it seems like he, he really wants to, to use language that grabs your attention. That's and, true. And, and that's maybe what people are getting hung up on. You know, yeah. he, he wants it to sort of be shocking, like, wait a second, am I saved? Yeah. You know, just to kind of catch your attention, but if you read it closely enough... Then it's, it's the same problem we have with... You're right. It's the same problem we have with James 2. We, after 2,000 years, or in, at least in the Western American church, say 200 years, have attached English definitions to biblical words. So when we hear the word save, we assume it means eternal salvation. Even though I've shown you of the 108 usages of the Greek word save in the New Testament, 58% of them have nothing to do with eternal salvation. They have to do with physical salvation. And the same thing is true with the words know and see and so forth and so on. That's why you've got to always ask yourself, am I dealing with positional truth here? Or practical truth. And once you get that dichotomy nailed down, then it makes a perfect sense. So if we go on here, just a couple more verses. 
Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices, and I inserted the word does because it's the word poieo, which means to do. He who does righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous, right? You, you cannot do righteousness, true righteousness, if you're not righteous. In other words, you can't do practical righteousness if you're not positionally righteousness. Conversely, he who sins is of the devil, all right? What does it mean to be of the devil. Again, we read this and we think, oh, he's definitely going to hell. Well, no, it is quite possible. That's why the teaser in my email that went out was, you know, can a child of God act like a child of the devil? Absolutely. Don't recommend it, but you can. And I can even do you one better than that. Not only, uh, by the way, and, and here's another example of a bad translation. Again, ESV uses that habitual. He who makes a practice of sin is of the devil because they think of the devil means you're going to hell. No. Uh, again, you can be of the devil anytime you're walking in the old man because that's what the old man is of. The old man is of the devil, the new man is of the spirit. The born of God part of you never produces sin. It's the un unborn of God part of you, the old man. Uh, but I can do you one better. Not only can you be of the devil as a believer, Jesus called Peter Satan. <laughs> he said, get thee behind me, Satan. So he didn't say you were of the devil. He, uh, you're actually Satan because of what you're doing right now, trying to get between me and the cross. So absolutely, any time we're not abiding in Christ and instead going the way of the flesh, we are really flirting with the devil. Uh, this is the phrase that came to my mind. We need to realize that when we're out of fellowship with Christ, we're flirting with the devil. We're basically toying around with the old man. And guess what? The longer you toy around with him, the, the, the further away you can drift from the Lord. Right? So that's why 1 John 1, 9 is so important. When we're walking in fellowship with the Lord, and unless you're in abject rebellion against God today, living a double life and truly committing egregious sins that you have chosen to not agree with God about and said, I don't care about you, God, I'm doing this anyway. In, in which case, now we've got a, a sort of hard heart, quenched spirit, backslidden situation. If you're just like most believers, trying every day to live for the Lord, walk by faith and grow in your faith, and the Spirit of God convicts you, that's why you need to deal with it. Because the, the further we get from those moments of conviction, we're flirting with the old man, and he can be very attractive. Yeah? I seem to remember reading a scripture that says that if you're a believer and you just continue in sin, that Oh, absolutely. First John. First John says, 5.16, there is sin that leads to death. Not a sin, by the way. Sin. First Corinthians 11 talks about believers in the church in Corinth who were dying because of their sin. James tells us in James 1 that sin, when it's full grown, brings forth what? Death. So sin is an equal opportunity killer. It does not care whether you're a Christian or not. If you continue in the path of sin, Proverbs um, has, uh, I, I wish I had them at my fingertips. I think I wrote several of the references down here. But Proverbs again and again says, look, if you walk in the way of unrighteousness, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're going to rest in the assembly of the dead. Uh, Proverbs eleven nineteen, Proverbs ten twenty seven, probably seven or eight different Proverbs talk about that. So sin is a killer by its definition. Because Satan is a killer. Jesus said he was a murderer from the beginning, John 8. So 
the ultimate goal, the reason Satan wants to keep you out of fellowship with God and sinning is because he wants to kill you. Because a Christian who dies is no longer of any value in the Lord's work. So remember, Satan's two goals, I mentioned one of them earlier, was to keep the lost lost. His other goal is to keep the saved defeated, right? Yes. So he wants to keep you marginalized. So you're exactly right, Sally. Absolutely, sin ultimately... Uh, God may choose. Now, it doesn't mean he, it's not a hard, fast uh, law. It's a principle. And for reasons known only to God, sometimes dirty, rotten, filthy sinners live to a ripe old age. And conversely, sometimes godly saints die young. We live in an inequitable world. But the principle is, and I would always put my money on the principle, that if you, if you live godly, you're going to prolong your life. If you live in a sinful state, you're going to die young. That's the, that's the principle. Um, so, and then he closes out here by saying, again, whoever has been born of God does not sin. This is another occasion where they t t make a egregious error. He doesn't say whoever has been born of God doesn't habitually sin. Because remember, how much sin is there in God? None. So to say that you can be a Christian but only sin a little completely is an, is an affront to a holy God. You know, Christians should not sin at all. And the born of God part of us never does. Sin is never sourced in the new man. The thought, again, of a sinless parent who begets a child who only sins a little bit is absurd. There's no sin in Christ. As a total person, we sin. 1 John 1, 8. Whoever claims he doesn't sin is a liar. But to, you know... And we can never be claimed to be free from it as a total person. But our inner self, our regenerated self, the new man, never produces sin. It's the whole point of the new man. So you put on the new man, as Paul says, you're going to reflect the new man. But if you put on that old man, you're going to reflect the old man. So the Christian life comes down to walking in the spirit and not after the flesh, which is just another way of saying old man, new man. And that's really what this whole uh, diagram is, is about. So verse 10, whoever does not do righteousness is not of God. When you're sinning, you're not of God in that mode. Doesn't mean positionally, but practically. It has to mean that. Otherwise, John's argument from start to finish is nonsense. It, it's it's self-contradictory. He admits that we all sin. He's challenging them to, to not sin so that you'll be in fellowship uh, with the Lord, going back to this diagram. And when you sin, you're not going to be disowned or to, God's not going to take your salvation away. But it is going to be pretty miserable if you, if you sort of camp out there. And the, and the task of the believer is to be sensitive to the Spirit. And, and, you know, again, it's not legalistic. It's not about keeping a list of, you know, behaviors so you can go to the confessional. It's about the heart attitude. And let's face it, sometimes we go days where we're just grumpy, bitter, pity party Christians. I've been there, you know. Been there, I could, you know, I can think of even pro, even longer seasons. You know, we've been through a, all of us have journeys. You know, I always hesitate to say, oh, we've been through rough times because there's always someone who's had a rougher time than you. Amen. Mm -hmm. People have gone through horrific experiences in life. But in 32 years of ministry, we've had some personal experiences that were very difficult. And I'll, I'm, I'm ashamed to say there have been times when I've not always responded in faith. You know, 
And I've sort of walked away and said, Lord, this is, I just don't understand it. And, you know, my dad, who's one of my greatest counselors, you know, he, he always reminds me, and I can't stand it when he does this, of everything I've preached for 30 years. He said, you always talk about walking by faith. Why don't you practice what you're preaching, right? So, so please understand that this isn't <clears throat> some formulaic, you know, like we're, we're physically crossing a line. It's more of an attitude of the heart. It's what Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount, that you may have never committed murder, but if you've hated, you know what, you've, you've, you've sinned, right? And so unless you're in wanton rebellion, we're in, the, we're in fellowship with the Lord. It, it kind of comes and goes as the Spirit of God convicts us. And the goal is to spend most of our time in the joy of the Lord so that our joy may be full, so that the things of the world don't affect us, they don't matter to us, they don't knock us off our kilter. When the rest of the world is going bananas, we can just steadfastly say, Jesus is my Lord, I'm trusting Him, I'm setting my mind on things above, those kinds of things. All right? Yeah. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Yeah, Nehemiah said, the joy of the Lord is my strength. And who, who better to illustrate that than a group of Jewish believers in that in their day who were trying to rebuild the, and but they were under all kinds of attack from within and without and from the Babylonians and all kinds of stuff and yet they were joyful right yeah so your word misery here I um, what about it seems to me that there are a lot of people that maybe aren't miserable but they are apathetic they're on autopilot they're asleep where do they fall in there? so the question because i'm not sure if it was picked up from the back back row back there is what about people who are out of fellowship but they don't seem from the outside to be miserable they just kind of apathetic right well so unless they have a hardened heart which is a category they are miserable. They may not just be showing it. Because a believer who persists in sin, the Spirit of God is going to be working on him or her constantly. But you can have a seared conscience where you've gotten so far away from the Lord. Hebrews talks about this. Where you make the conscious volitional decision to say, I'm done. And in that case, when you've turned your back on God, you, you may not really even hear the convicting work of the Holy Spirit anymore. And the Lord may call you home. He may not. I mean, who knows the mind of the Lord? Um, but we, we, we see examples of people who actually drift so far away. It's not really even a drift. It's a const, it's a, they, it may begin as a drift, but something happens where they get to the point where they make the conscious, volitional, willful, willful decision to forsake God. And uh, when they do that, then they may appear like they're not struggling and wrestling spiritually with sin or no sin. Uh, and indeed, inside, they may not even hear the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. But apart from those situations, every believer who is camped out in, in the outer circle there, outside of fellowship, if they stay there very long, they're going to be miserable. And indeed, it's that misery that the Spirit of God uses, even in a moment. It may, not, it may even be 10 seconds, right? You may be in fellowship with the Lord. The Spirit of God convicts you. Oh, man, you, you shouldn't have said that to someone. That, you know. And in that instant, you go, oh, Lord, you're right. And next time I see him, I'm going to apologize. And just like that, 
you're back in fellowship, but it was the fact that you felt so, you know, guilty and so miserable thinking about how your words, your tongue had maybe hurt somebody. So there was a, a brief moment of misery. But if you camp out there and you say, you know what, they deserved it, Lord. I don't care if it hurt them or not. And I've, it felt good to me. And I, you know, if you just sort of camp out there, then, then yeah, you're going to be miserable until you, the Spirit's not going to let you go until you either completely harden your heart or you confess. So, um, yeah. Um, I just, one of the things that really strikes me about is, um, is 1 Corinthians 13, 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. So, no matter what we do, we're always, like we said, we're never going to be perfect until we're in Christ's presence. Yes. We're never, going to be, we're never going to be fully sinless. But it's almost like there's that this scripture is set up to cause us to yearn for it. Yeah, so I take the first Corinthians thirteen passage not as talking about when we see Christ, but when the full revelation of the Word of God is complete. But, this, but, the, but that's still a true point. It's just I don't think that verse makes it. But the point is still true that until this mortal puts on immortality and we are in heaven, we're going to be wrestling with sin. And that's John's whole point, that in the total person, 1 John 1, 8, if you, if you say you have no sin, you're lying. But, you know, the question is how do you respond to that sin? How, how, do, you, how do you do it? And, and no child of God should sit back and say, God's okay with this. That as long as I'm, you know, as long as I'm only 10% sinful or 5% sinful or 20% sinful, God's okay. God's never okay with sin. In God, there is no sin. And you can never say, you can never blame your sin on Christ, the new nature. Last verse, and then we'll dismiss. Uh, in 1 Timothy, or excuse me, 2 Timothy 2, verse 12, going back to what you said and, and my lengthy discussion of uh, total rebellion and hard heart. We need to remember that Paul reminds us in 2 Timothy 2, 12, that, or 13 rather, even if we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. That goes back to this, no child will ever penetrate through this wall. Even someone who goes so far as to completely volitionally, consciously say, God, I'm done. I'm done. And turn their back on God. God cannot turn his back on you because you're a child of God and he can't deny himself, right? Yeah. So I want to clarify. I'm talking not about, you know, blessing. Not about that. I'm talking yeah. about the gray in the middle, the almost joyless Christian life. Um, I, you know, I, I'm not doing a lot of sin that I know of, but, but everything just seems flat. Not miserable necessarily, but not necessarily in fellowship. So I did answer a question you didn't ask, so I apologize for that. But now I'll answer the question you asked, or I'll try to answer the question you asked. So I guess what I was saying is that the person you're describing may appear not to be miserable, but they really are. That really a believer... Is, now, they may have convinced them, they may be self-deceived, and Peter talks about that. They've convinced themselves that they're not. But in contrast to the fullness of joy, they don't know what they're missing. 
So I get what you're saying that a person who's just apathetic and just a marginal sort of lukewarm type Christian, you know, although that's not exactly what John was meaning there, but you know my point, someone who's not on fire for Christ, they may not appear to be miserable and they may not even consider themselves miserable. They may be like, yeah, yeah, pretty good. But, but if they only knew the joy that would await them, if they would fully embrace their position in Christ and fully be in fellowship with him, then by comparison, it would seem miserable. And then, and then furthermore, I would argue that if they really took stock and took moment and were self-aware, there would be some misery there, even though they may try to squelch it. So that, that's kind of what I was getting at. Yeah? Isn't, what is actually the definition of joy, though? I think sometimes people get confused between joy and happiness, and people have different personalities. So when we talk about the joy of the Lord, I mean, I know some people that are like, oh, please, you know, they're just like <laughs> over the top. Yeah. Well, that may not be my personality. It doesn't mean that I don't have joy and, and hopefully much fellowship with the Lord. But, but what exactly do you say is the definition of joy? Yeah, so I'd have to, so the Greek word is kara. It's where we get the English name kara, K-A-R-A. If you ever know anyone named kara, they ought to be joyful. If they're not, they are got the wrong name, right? Uh-oh. <laughs> so, so, uh-oh, I don't want to be in your car on the way home, <laughs> Jeff. Um, so, uh, uh, but you're right. It's not about the, exp- there's a difference between the expression of joy and the quality of joy, right? Yeah. So the quality of joy and again, don't hold me this because I have to look it up and kind of see a little bit of the other usage and etymology and whatever. But I'm guessing the quality of joy has more to do with peace, trust, confidence, hope, just your real, just being comfortable with who you are in Christ. But, you know, the term is most often used as an expression of that. So, but you're right. I mean, there are people that are just bubbly, excited, and you know that you you know you you don't want to be around them when you're having a pity party, because they're not going to let you. Um, but I don't. I think it's more than that. I, I think again, like all emotions, emotion is the external. The real quality is internal, and so we could do a word study on joy and see what nuances it has. But I'm going to guess it's probably hope, peace, confidence. So. Well, we went way over. I, you guys certainly could have left if you needed to, but I did want to finish this uh, session, and uh, hopefully that was, uh, was helpful. But like James, you know, study it. Don't just take my word for it. Dive into it, but make sure you look at it in context and don't just assume uh, that you know what it means. So, all right, well, thank you guys. We'll see you Sunday.